This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we have an interview about a non-native invasive grass called cheatgrass with Dr. Jane Belknap. We learn about where this grass came from, how long it's been here, and how it's completely transformed western and southwestern landscapes. It's a good show. Stay with us. interested in cheatgrass because I noticed that it grew in patches and I love to know what structures communities I mean these patches it's like a spaceship landed in this spot and that's like where exactly where its footprint was and then when it took off it left cheatgrass behind was just crazy and I'm like this is just can't be On today's show, we explore the invasive grass called cheatgrass, or bromus, with Dr. Jane Belknap. Dr. Belknap is known worldwide for her work with biological soil crust, but she has also widely studied cheatgrass and the incredible effects that this grass has on the desert around Moab. Cheatgrass invasion can change how fire moves across the landscape, how much nutrients there are in the soil, what kind of other plants and soil organisms can survive, and how native animals eat and use habitat. We begin by talking about what cheatgrass is and where it came from. So cheatgrass, the Latin name is Bromus tectorum. It's, there's other species within that genus in the western U.S. It came from the Mediterranean and was introduced accidentally, it's believed, in livestock feed hay that came over um, during the late 1800s. Since then, it spread all over the various species. Bromus tectorum, what we call cheatgrass, is mostly in the northern part of the range, northern being from southern Utah north. Other species of bromus are down south, and then other species are actually in the Midwest. And so there's, depending on the climate, there's different species in different places. And so all these species came over. They all came over mostly accidentally. The reason that I keep sort of hedging on that is that a lot of people actually like bromus as forage for livestock. It's very nutritious, very high in nitrogen. The reason it's called cheatgrass, though, is when you get down into drier places, it doesn't stay green very long. So it's not very nutritious or palatable, and it's got those really spiky seeds. And so... It can irritate the cow's stomach or even get embedded in the stomach and create problems. So, in essence, it's cheating people who might want to plant it. But where it rains a lot, it's an excellent forage plant. And so some people encourage it. So you mentioned that it is expansive, so the different uh, species of bromus cover a large area. But within those areas, how prevalent is can cheatgrass be uh did the prevalence of cheatgrass depends entirely on the soils and one of the big studies that 
I and others did was looking at exactly that. Where does cheatgrass grow and where does it not grow and why? And it's very clearly dependent on soil texture and chemistry. So in certain areas, you hardly see it at all. And the perfect example is out in the landscapes around Moab. Until you get to the Manco Shale, there's really not that much cheatgrass. Very shallow, very coarse, sandy soils just isn't. So basically low nutrients. Remember, cheatgrass is an annual grass. Annual grasses have to have all of their nutrients and sufficient water to germinate, grow, and set seed in all in one year. And perennials have a chance to kind of hang out and wait for conditions to be perfect. Annuals don't have that. So they need more nutrient-rich soils than a perennial might need. And, and remind us, a perennial just means it's there year-round. Perennials are year-round, year after year. So they can kind of hedge their bets and just hang out if it's not a very good year or the you know nutrients aren't available or something. But annuals who are growing from whenever they germinate, mostly in the early fall or the spring, are done by June. So they've got to have everything right then, right there. So they've got to have higher nutrition available to them than a perennial plant does. So you basically can keep that rule of thumb in mind. If you want annual plants, you add fertilizers. If you don't want them, you don't. And that's one of the reasons most of our garden plants are annuals. And we add a lot of fertilizer because we have to in the desert because it's basically sandy, pretty, and fertile soils if you don't. And cheatgrass is no different. Um, It's going to grow where there's sufficient fertility to grow. So therefore, it's very patchy. Now, there's some exceptions, and that's, for instance, the Snake River Plains in southern Idaho. Extraordinarily rich, fertile soils. Cheatgrass can grow everywhere. There's no patchiness up there because the soils are so fertile everywhere. But on the Colorado Plateau, it's very, those fertility zones are very patchy. And so cheatgrass will get very patchy. Are any of our native grasses annuals? There are some. Festuca is a cute little annual grass. Um, And there's others, but not on the Colorado Plateau. But they're not very common. It's really interesting. It's sort of a niche that was not exploited by the natives. Perennials have the day here. We don't just basically have very many annual plants. Um, It's a very dominated a system very dominated by perennials and mostly perennial shrubs. We don't even have that many areas one might call a grassland. Grasslands require deep soils. We don't have deep soils. We have very shallow soils on the plateau. Um, Other deserts have deeper soils, but grasses also depend on more water than shrubs. And so it's pretty hard to make a living as a grass in the desert. And when I say they need more water, grasses have fibrous roots, so they can't go down really, really deep to find water. Shrubs can. They've got woody roots, and it's basically the hydraulic pressure to pump that water back up to the plant. If you've got a woody wall around you, you can push against it to use that for to get the pressure up. To be able to suck water to from suck deep. suck that up. water up. Fibrous roots, you can't do that very far. And so they are limited to areas where there's enough soil and water right around their roots to live. 
And so that restricts where they can grow. And shrubs can explore a much larger volume of environment. I don't want to say soil because they can go right down through the bedrock cracks. So, you know, they, they, but they can really look around for the water and grasses can't. So we have very limited grasslands um, in deserts in general. So if this niche was open, but nothing had evolved to really fill it, how has cheatgrass and other bromus species been able to do so well? Well, it's really actually even more interesting than the annual niche. Cheatgrass germinates in the fall. We don't have any plant that germinates in the fall, which is really interesting. Like, why not? Um, it's extraordinary. And it's, we have what we call summer annuals that germinate in late May and June, but they're done by late fall. Bromus, the optimal germination time for bromus is late August and September. So it's germinating when no one else does. So it's not only found the annual niche, it's found like this super perfect time to germinate. Nobody else is active out there. So there's all these water and nutrients available. Um, Oh, and I don't mean nobody's active. The shrubs are still active. But that inner space between the shrubs, there's nobody else in there. And so cheatgrass can germinate in the fall, get its root system really well developed all winter long. And then in the spring, kaboom, it's there. The perennials, on the other hand, the grasses, spring comes, they have to wake up in essence. They've got to make leaf tissue. They've got to do all this work to get going. Cheatgrass is already going. And that's one of the reasons it's so incredibly competitive against the perennials is it's been clever enough to figure out to germinate in the fall, it can womp. Um, Now, you can get germination of bromus in the spring, but those plants are never very big. They're tiny, actually. They're just a few inches tall. They only set one, two, three seeds, maybe. Yet the guys who germinated in the fall are the big ones, and they're the ones that you see out there that are, you know, have a whole head of seeds and things. So it's very much the time that they want to grow. And it makes sense. If you germinate in the spring, you're going to be competing with everyone else in developing your roots for those nutrients in the water. You're not going to have very long to get your root system developed before it's time to go back asleep because you're out of water. So if you do it in the fall, you really have a huge advantage over germinating in spring. Is there a hypothesis as to why our natives haven't had that kind of plasticity to take advantage of that? No, I think it's just crazy. It's like, why didn't anyone figure this one out? So you've got a couple of things you can think of. One is, you know, we like to think that plants and other and animals can just sort of adapt to anything. Well, no, there's a lot of genetic determinism, and they just can't escape that. You know, so their genes telling them how they have to. Yeah, eat. they're just saying, okay, you know, you're, you, sir plant, are going to germinate in the spring. And they just don't have the ability to adapt to a fall germination. The second thing is that maybe for those species, it's not such a good idea. You know, there's certain things you've got to be able to do to live through a winter. Winters are cold. This tissue is very fragile to freezing so you've got to have a lot of antifreeze in your tissue and so maybe those plants just never could make that we have shrubs here that drop their leaves in the winter and other shrubs that don't 
So there's sort of this clue. I mean, it would make sense to keep your leaves in the winter. The soils are wet. It's it's not that cold during the day here. So you would be able to photosynthesize and, and add carbon to your stores and things, but they don't. So one has to ask that same question of why don't you keep your leaves? And it could be that they can't make the antifreeze. Or that, I mean, I think of plants always in terms of carbon exchange. So all plants fix carbon using, so atmospheric carbon through photosynthesis is made into plant carbon. Sugars. Sugars. And then they have to distribute it. You know, they can grow leaves and roots with it. They can repair themselves with it. Whatever they're going to do, it's all a carbon economy. And so they're going to have to figure out what's the smartest thing to do with their carbon. And maybe it's just not smart for these guys to grow during the winter. You know, it could be that it's just the not, you know, it's just not carbon smart. And for cheatgrass, it is carbon smart. Now, the one thing that cheatgrass does, this could be another thing with that plasticity, is it doesn't grow up in the winter. It just stays as this rosette flat against the soil surface. So it's developing roots all winter, but it's not sending shoots up where they're going to get frozen. So another thing is maybe the native plants don't know how to do that. Mm. You know, when they grow, they just grow up. And so they don't have it set so that when it's cold, you stay flat, and when it gets warm, you go up. And so that could be part of it, too. Interesting. Yeah, it really is. It's But it's a phenomenally adaptive plant, and it's moved into all sorts of situations that the natives in thousands and thousands and zillions of years never figured out how to move into. And so when it invades an area, how does that work? What's kind of the succession? Oh, this is so interesting. Um, It all depends on the area. So we have been studying a never-grazed grassland in Canyonlands National Park, part of which got invaded. And there again, the really infertile soils did not get invaded, and the little slightly more fertile soils did get invaded. But it didn't matter. Cheatgrass has had no effect on that ecosystem. The natives are just as happy as little campers. There's been no impact on the diversity, no impact on the biomass, no impact on the nutrient cycling, zero impact on that system that was never grazed by livestock. You go to places that have been grazed heavily by livestock, and I would like to emphasize that because there's lots of places that have been grazed very lightly, and it's probably going to be similar. Um, oh, and I should say, so it's covered by gorgeous biocross in Virginia Park, the never grazed grassland. So we've got this example of what these systems used to look like. And what we have is a system that's not all that resistant to being invaded, but the resilience is phenomenal. It doesn't have any impact on it. So they're there, you, but they're not They're there, anything. but they're not changing anything. That, so basically the cheatgrass has just filled the inner space in between the native grass, you know, the perennial grasses in there, what we found is that the grasses, that the community is extremely resilient, and cheatgrass is just filling in between the perennial grasses. But when I say filling in, it's not 100% covered by any means. There's not enough nutrients in grass. It's still pretty sparse. So there's also plenty of room for the native annuals to grow. 
So there is a little dynamic in that years that are really, really wet, cheatgrass gets very big and very tall and the natives don't compete as well. But in an average year or a dry year, which of course comes right after the wet year, we never have more than one or two wet years in a row, the natives are back and the cheatgrass is short. So there is a little bit of dynamic, but it's not, we've been monitoring for 20 years. We see no overall pattern. You know, they're just sort of going off and on and off and on, both of them, depending on how much it rains that year. You go out into other rangelands that have been heavily grazed, and you don't see that kind of resilience at all. Cheatgrass moves in, and it pushes the natives out. And worse, it starts fires, and where I should say it carries fires, but it really can push out components of the community in these places that aren't as resilient. So the question is, is it the biocrusts that are giving it that resilience? Is it just soil nutrients? Because those nutrients in these grazed places are also de- depleted compared to those in Virginia Park when we compare the same soil type, same everything, right? You know, very, very close location, but grazed versus not much less nutrients in the soil so you know that might give it some sort of edge in fighting back against the bromus invasion Um, certainly the snake river plains the natives in some areas are extirpated they're not there Um, they've just that combination of grazing and fire has just and competition for bromus has just pushed them out and that's another thing to keep in mind here is that bromus doesn't care about fire and most annuals don't because they just there's a seed bank so they just germinate again most of our perennials in the western u.s are not adapted to fire the fire cycles were probably on order of 300 400 years in the lower elevations so they were just burned much less frequently oh just way and in a really like the snake river plain heavy infestation of bromus it's burning every two to three years so what happens so fire catches and then bromus is what just like a a sheet that carries the fire well yeah because these remember the desert shrubs used used to be like a meter or two apart and now they're still a meter or two apart but there's bromus in between to carry the fire from one shrub to the other so it's made this continuous fuel line which is a really bad idea if you don't want to carry the fire. And before, you know, it'd burn up the shrub and hit that bare inner space and just go out. And now it hits the shrub and then goes through the cheatgrass to the next shrub. So in the grazed area, you'd think there'd be less nutrients than in some place that's never been grazed before. Yes, there are. And so wouldn't, if cheatgrass really loves those nutrients, wouldn't you expect it to be growing in where there are more nutrients rather than well, less? Well, it's, it's yes and no. It just has to have a minimum amount. Okay. So, you know, it can grow bigger and better if there's more, but just because there's less doesn't mean it won't grow there. It's just if there's too few, then it won't grow there. So there's a threshold that nutrients that it needs. If a place is grazed, does that mean it's more likely to have cheatgrass? No, not at all. So if a place is grazed, it is not at all more or less likely to have cheatgrass um, just because it's grazed. It's all about the soil chemistry and the texture. So first, that's the first level of, are you going to get invaded or not? If there's not the requisite conditions in the soils 
and the climate, then the answer is no, you can do whatever you want. You're not going to get cheatgrass. And you can see that all around Moab. We have plenty of places that are grazed that have no cheatgrass. So it's not, that's not the first cutting thing. It's whether or not there's the fertility to support the cheatgrass. Um, and I, I should go back just a little bit and say that a lot of, I think a lot of the resistance and resilience of these systems were pounded out in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I'm not talking necessarily about grazing now. Um, the amount of use we have on these lands now is infinitely less than it used to be. And I'm not sure, and I'm actually becoming convinced, that we push these systems over a resilience threshold that they're not going to be able to get back over unless we go in and fix it. So I'm not pointing fingers at the current activities necessarily. Some allotments, sure. Some allotments are really hammered. But most of what I see, I really think is a legacy of what happened in the past. But okay, let's say that we've got a system where the soils are fertile enough to, to support the cheatgrass. Now we go in and we disturb the surface. That's where we run into trouble because cheatgrass needs to be buried to germinate. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't have any mechanism to get into the soil. It doesn't have self-drilling mechanisms it's like cash. other seeds might have. Yeah, some seeds, some native seeds have these little awns that just go and drill them right down in. It's cached by rodents, but not way, not like a lot of the other. Um, and plus, we don't have that many rodents, frankly, because it's a desert. So it's pretty, and it evolved with large herds in the Mediterranean. And so it was getting buried by the hoof action. Mm. So it's pretty much dependent still on having a disturbed soil surface. And frankly, you know, you, it just, the reason being that it needs to stay moist to germinate. It's, there's nothing magical about a disturbed surface. I can germinate cheatgrass on a parking lot on asphalt if I just keep it wet. Well, that's the key in the desert. How do you, how does that seed stay wet? It needs to be buried. It's the only way. If it's sitting on the surface, it's going to dry out right away whenever there's any rain or dew or anything. You've got to be buried. You can be buried in soil. You can be buried in plant litter, but you've got to be buried. So that's really the key of that disturbance is getting buried. Well, so if you have grazing animals, then you're burying the seeds with that hoof action. Um, but again, you're going to have to have a pretty intense area. You know, if it's 600 cows on 4,000 acres, then, you know, around the water holes, if the soils are fertile, sure. As you get out and the animals disperse out, then, you know, less likely. There has been efforts to look at using livestock to reduce cheatgrass and other weeds. And while it can be very effective, it can only be effective in an extremely small area. Because you can only have so many animals, you know, like, okay, let's say you have a thousand goats. Well, you're not going to cover 400,000 acres before the seed set on the 400,000 acres. You can only treat, you know, what, 20 acres, 30 acres, maybe 100. But that's not what we're talking about. 
up in the Snake River Plain, we're talking about million acres. There is no way you are going to control that kind of infestation with grazing animals, and you're going to make it worse, too, because any seed they miss is going to get trampled in. And then germinate. And then germinate. So I just don't see this as a viable solution for the large landscape issues we have. You know, if you've got a campground or something you're trying to, like, deal with because it's just nasty with all those pokey seeds, maybe, you know, it can help knock it back a bit and you can use less herbicides and things. But for a landscape-level solution, I just don't see how it's possible. At what point do you call an invasive species naturalized, meaning (laughs) you are considering it part of the system and not trying to get rid of it anymore? It is a huge science debate at what point is a species naturalized and no longer invasive. And it's really just up to the individual scientist to whom you talk. Um, I have really, I go back and forth. And I guess I'm sort of at this, if this is a plant that moves in and wipes out all the native communities and really... You know, it's apocalypse time for that community. That's an invasive. I don't care how long it's been there. (laughs) It's like, you know, that is an invasive. To turn the question on its head, though, I think there's also an economic side to this. We have poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into cheatgrass and gotten nowhere in fighting it. Does that, is there an economic point at which you give up and say, okay, It's naturalized. So there's really a couple of different angles to this. There's the philosophical angle. There's the economic angle. And there's just the, I don't know, frustration angle, I guess, of like, okay, it's been here for 200 years. We give up. Um, And I think it's a mixture of all three. But especially that if it's going to come in and wipe out an ecosystem, then I think we need to fight it because... It's not just taking the plants out. So animals are very dependent on specific plants for food and very specific structure of a community for habitat. And what I mean by that is a habitat that has vertical elements to it, like shrubs and trees, you're going to have very different species growing in it than if all you have are annual grasses that are these really short, monotonous layers of things. And so it just reverberates through the whole system when you go from a shrub-dominated system to a cheatgrass-dominated system. It has huge implications for everything in there, huge implications for the hydrologic cycles, so water availability to the animals and humans, huge implications just for soil erosion, for dust storms, and for sediment going into water. And, I mean, it's just... it really does collapse the ecosystem. And so that, to me, is an invasive that doesn't ever get to be naturalized in my book. Uh, What got you interested in these topics? I got interested in cheatgrass because I noticed that it grew in patches. And I love to know what structures communities. And I just looked out there and I said, now what? I mean, these patches... When I'm talking patches, there will be a heavy cover of cheatgrass in a place, and I mean it, 
a half a foot away, nothing. And I'm like, how in the world can that be? That it's like a spaceship landed in this spot, and that's like where exactly where its footprint was. And then when it took off, it left cheatgrass behind, but nothing to the side burned up. You know, I mean, it was just crazy. And I'm like, this is just can't be. You know, this and that meant it had to be a soil thing. It couldn't be rainfall because they were right next to each other. And so it got me fascinated by how soils could control patchiness like that. And that's how it got me started. And so we ran all over the western U.S. And we have just an insane number of sites that we sampled looking at that boundary of cheat, not cheat, and asked what the difference in soil was. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? Oh, discovery. Discovery is the best. I mean, just think, somebody pays me to, like, fulfill all of my desire to know things. You know, I mean, it's just awesome. (laughs) How could it be better than that? You know, I could like that, the cheatgrass patches, I could be driving somewhere and look out and go, wow, look at that patch. Like, how come that's there? Well, gee, I don't know. Let's find out. And I get to go find out. I mean, it's the funnest thing ever. That's why it's the funnest thing ever. I can't imagine anything being more fun. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for this interview. It's been really interesting to think about all these topics. Yep, way fun. Cool. Thank you. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.